Welcome, everybody, to Never Stay Dead. It's Damien, along with my buddy, Matt. Matt, I'm here. (laughs) I'm ready to talk some comics. You know what I've been failing to do in all of our podcasts is, or in most of them, is to shout out other people. So before we go any further, do you mind if I shout out our buddy George? Our buddy George, who is on... Meanwhile at the podcast. There you go. His new podcast, which is a kind of pop culture roundtable with a comic shop owner and an artist and George, and it's it's pretty excellent. So I've been listening to that a lot. They come out clockwork every week. Um, Unlike some people. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we'll we'll try to make George look good for a few more months. So I also wanted to shout out, even though we mention it often, <laughs> Untold Tales of uh, Spider Man. Talks. Correct title. Untold, Untold talks of Spider Man. Untold talks of Spider Man, which is an even harder name to remember than Never Stay Dead for me. <laughs> but be that as may, your last episode was fantastic about the comic book Hookie, the graphic novel Hookie. That was the last one I think that came out. Um, as of to when this public. goes up, we yeah. should have a new episode out on a story in. Amazing fantasy or Amazing Spider-Man Family Number One, Volume Something, part of the brand new day era. The Spider-Man Family Alliance messed up, but it's a story by JMD that is forty-eight hours that takes place between Amazing Fantasy fifteen and Amazing Spider-Man Number One. That I genuinely think uh, is a better episode than the Hooky episode. Really? Oh, because the Hooky episode was really. I was on a long walk listening to you guys. I was actually walking through a graveyard during a lot of <laughs> listening to you guys talk about it. Good to know. Um, anyway, so uh, those were the two things I wanted to shout out today. Well, thank you for letting me know that you've been enjoying that podcast. The last few episodes that we put out have been among um, my favorite. and uh, So it, I need yeah. to go back and catch some of those. It does... I my podcast listening's kind of erratic and you you guys are always there so I always think I can go back to you so I need to go back. We appreciate your patronage and <laughs> dear listeners, we appreciate your patronage and your patience all five of you, I believe. We don't ask any of you for money unlike other greedy podcasts. Yeah, well, it's not <laughs> like I'm seeing any of it anyways. <laughs> I may cut some of this out. So today, we we both kind of had the idea of let's talk about some Silver Surfer, yeah. and we settled on focusing on two um, kind of one basically one-shot stories about the Silver Surfer, both scripted by Stan Lee, one drawn by Mobius. I think it's just, what's it called? Silver Surfer Parable. Which... So, we had a long conversation because I said Morbius and uh, Damien was rightfully confused. And I learned a little bit about the wonderful world of pronunciation. World. I was really looking forward to some incredible team up between Morbius the Living Vampire and the Silver Surfer. It seems ripe, doesn't it? Like there's a yes. story, two of the most boring characters in the Marvel Universe what? coming together. Two of the most cool looking underutilized characters in the Marvel Universe. I... Okay, so I, I guess we should probably start with Damien. How did you first become aware of well, the Silver me, Surfer? The other thing, we're, the other main book we're going to cover oh. is a one shot by Stan Lee and John Byrne. Um, 
that I think maybe came out before the Mobius. I'm not sure which came out first. Uh, the John Byrne is 1982. The Morbius is, which is Silver Surfer Parable, FYI, was 1988. Okay. And it looks like the tail end of 1988 because the next one was 1989. So. And if nothing else, yeah, they were unusual returns to Marvel for Stan Lee, Marvel writing for Stan Lee. Yeah, he um, uh, popped back in here and there. I always think of a Spider-Man Daredevil uh, team-up he did uh, in the 90s. So, you know. Oh, really? Wow. I missed that one. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, and the John... I think the the Mobius one, not the Morbius one, was <laughs> an original story by Stan Lee. And the John Byrne one is pl- is plotted by John Byrne, and then Stan Lee comes in afterwards and puts in the dialogue, which is his greatest talent, it seems, sometimes. So anyway, sorry, you were backtracking to our origin stories about the Silver Surfer. Uh, that's how you want to phrase it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'm not sure if I read um, the the Galactus trilogy first in, in reprints in, in World's Greatest Comics, as it was called, mm-hmm. one of Marvel's reprint magazines, or if I first encountered the Silver Surfer in an early issue of the Defenders, maybe like Defenders 2 or 3 might have been my first Defenders. And the Silver Surfer was an on and off member of the Defenders. And um, Stan Lee's version of the Silver Surfer was kind of legendary. The, the thing he did in the late 60s with John Buscema at the time I started reading comics, it seemed legendary to me anyway. Uh, how about you? Would you remember when you first encountered the Silver Surfer? Yeah, so being on brand, uh, the first time I really read a comic with the Silver Surfer was in Amazing Spider-Man. In the 90s, there was a two-parter where the Surfer comes down and tries to help Spider-Man out dealing with Carnage. And it ends Uh up that the symbiote is attracted to the power and leaves Cletus and takes over the Silver Surfer. So you have a Silver Surfer symbiote uh deal which might play into something we talk about later and right that's interesting yeah i uh we covered this on untold with um mark Giannacchio on a past episode if you guys want to go look for that but it's pretty widely regarded as kind of a 90s fluke that not a lot of people love but i think it's a fun one huh okay and oh well i wish i'd read that then in preparation for this so yeah, so that was the first time I read The Silver Surfer, but I have to admit, um, I so I used to access new Marvel characters by finding a time they teamed up with uh, the Spider-Man or the X-Men, typically. Unless it was a time the Spider-Man and X-Men teamed up, which was like the holy grail for me back in the day. <laughs> but uh, I found The Silver Surfer to be really dry and boring. He seemed like a number of characters to me where he was supposed to be super powerful and not have a lot of personality. Interestingly, I actually found Superman far more fascinating. This is typically the Superman problem. But I found this to be much more true for, say, Thor or Silver Surfer or Adam Warlock. Warlock, sorry. (laughs) And so I just... um, didn't really get to him, and nor did I have any connection to the Fantastic Four at the time. So, so in that very first issue, 
that he teamed up with Spider-Man, you immediately identified him as bland and uninteresting. Yeah, well, and to be fair, uh, when he's paired against, um, you know, Spider-Man, you know, one of the more... Who's all personality. (laughs) Yeah, who's a fairly wet character. And then Carnage, one of the most bizarre i mean personality wise taking aside the serial killing and color and all that just like very kind of chatty angry villain uh the silver surfer does not uh really meet on that playing field to a young boy you know he he doesn't have a lot to say he's very stern it's kind of boring (laughs) it's funny because when i was a young boy when i would I would see flashes of the Silver Surfer in a sense, and I thought he was the coolest thing ever. And then when they finally reprinted all of the Stan Lee, John Buscema, Silver Surfer stories, I kept trying to be excited by it. Huh. But in reality, looking back on it, I wasn't really that excited about it. Um, but it had really cool art, and I liked things about space and cosmic stuff. There's a lot of interesting stuff surrounding the Silver Surfer. So, if I may, um, I believe the Silver Surfer is one of those characters that is more art-driven. And so you have this cool concept, this cool look, and then the writing around it never quite met, but they kept pushing it because it's a classic character of Marvel. And so you get these cool takes and these writers who you know, we're familiar with the character as a kid and they're able to put a new spin on it and they keep carrying it forward, but it never really clicks for more than a run or so. And I feel like Ghost Rider is another great example of this. And that's how you tie the Ghost Rider and Silver Surfer together Uh in my mind. And Um, then tie Morbius in somehow. Right. And this idea came to me when I was hearing an interview with Eric Larson where he's talking about Venom and how you know, the character had this great visual hook, but the writing around him was super weird, and so he's been, they've been kind of flaky with the the lore of it, and no one's particularly cared by and large. Of course, you know, comic book, there's always those stickler nerds. Right. But, by and large, people have let a lot of continuity and Venom fly without a lot of fuss. Well, so, in the lore of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee comic book stuff, Jack Kirby just threw the Silver Surfer into this story and mm-hmm. Stanley didn't know it was going to be there. And the only suspicious thing about that story is Stanley might not have known Galactus was going to be there either. <laughs> but nevertheless, perhaps perhaps they had discussed Galactus and not the Silver Surfer and Stan and Jack Kirby when he threw the Silver Surfer in there had a concept of the Silver Surfer as a being um, horribly alien to human ways of thinking, which Galactus was also in a sense. And he was a bit horrified as Stan Lee started to try to make the Silver Surfer like an angst-filled teenager with a bit of a Jesus Christ pose going on or something. And, um, And so then Silver Surfer became this legendary character and Stan Lee kept not wanting to do a comic book about it, about him until Stan could do it himself. And when he did the comic book himself, he didn't include Jack Kirby and instead uh, pulled in John Buscema, who was their second most popular artist, and did these special oversized issues and turned the Silver Surfer 
completely away from anything Jack Kirby had wanted it to be. And I think in Stanley, to me, in Stanley's mind, the Silver Surfer was was like the angsty college students of the day in the Vietnam War protests, discovering the violence and horror of the modern world and being distressed by it, which didn't make any sense, really, because he was the herald of a being that destroyed planets just because he was hungry. <laughs> um, but Stanley ignored that fact. And that kind of what I'm calling the Christ likeness of Silver Surfer, I think is what hobbled the character ever since. And I think of the, for, it's ironic that Stan Lee, who kind of created the personality of Peter Parker, created the Silver Surfer and thought the Silver Surfer was his deeper, more important creation when it's really kind of a shallow creation who has no, nothing to say other than woe is me and woe is the world and I'm too noble for this world kind of stuff <laughs> in the original Stanley run. Does that make sense? It, it makes a sense. And what's funny to me about that is both of those takes go away from kind of what, if you're a kid in the 90s who's, imminently familiar with the ninja turtles say and you hear yeah. the silver surfer the personality of either way you go on that doesn't match nothing about the surfer right. meets surfer culture in any way anyway right and to me i think that's one of the biggest like losses is he's just this stern noble like you said christ-like guy and it just doesn't fit the dude rides around the cosmos on a surfboard. Just being a dud is just such an odd personality to put to that power set and like idea, you know? He's a surfer. He, sh he shouldn't be like the most. Because um... I mean, he's so noble and so played so straight. Uh, you know, like the Fantastic Four kind of treat him in a way uh, you know everybody treats him in a way because he's mm -hmm. he projects this personality and it's just so weird that it, that's the guy with the surfboard right <laughs> you know that never occurred to me as a kid just because i that at that time there was no not much of an established concept of what the surfer personality was like or surf culture or anything well i'm trying to think because i mean i mean there were those in net not Annette O'Toole, whatever they were, um, Frankie Valli and Annette someone movies, I guess, about goofy kids going surfing. And that was around um, in the 60s? Yeah, I All think right. so. Okay. And the, there was the Beach Boys. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, it reaches past the 70s, and I'm like, it's somewhere in the past, I can't line it all up. <laughs> but I, for whatever reason, probably because of the way Jack Kirby drew it, 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 the Silver Surfer, despite the surfer part of it, was taken more as one of these, um, you know, science fictional things like out of Arthur C. Clarke in 2001 and that kind of thing. The, the sort of mysterious cosmic thing that's superior to humankind and beyond <laughs> our understanding and that kind of thing. Anyway, well, why don't we talk about... Well, I feel like the Mobius one fits <laughs> okay. most of all. Um, so, I mean, I would say the, the plot of the Mobius one, the Stanley and Mobius one parable, 
and it lives up to his name parable. It definitely wants to be a parable. But it's apparently at some point in the past, the Silver Surfer and Galactus have come to the earth. Silver Surfer rebelled against Galactus, but this is a world without heroes or other Marvel Universe context. Mm -hmm. And uh, got Galactus to agree not to eat Earth and go away. And then the Silver Surfer was banished to Earth and has lived as a homeless person on Earth because Earth is actually such a horrible place and I think he kind of regrets saving it. And then Galactus comes back and as a way to work around his promise not to destroy Earth, he instead sets himself up as a god who tells humans they can do anything they want to. There is no good and evil. They can kill and steal and rape and do whatever they want. And this is the word of God. And so everyone starts doing that. <laughs> and, uh, and a big church leader, a Jerry Falwell type, if you will. Sorry, uh, Jerry or, Falwell. What? Is he one of those like televangelist types? A televangelist type. All right. Decides that he's going to be the prophet of Galactus. And so he becomes the most powerful religious leader on earth, proclaiming the gospel of Galactus. And then, and the Silver Surfer tries to stop Galactus. And then when the preacher's uh, sister is killed in an encounter with Galactus, he turns on Galactus. Everyone sees it on TV and turns against Galactus. And so Galactus was thinking humanity would destroy themselves and then he would eat Earth so that he could get around his promise. But then Galactus realizes they're not going to destroy themselves. They've, they've come to their senses. And so he leaves. And then the people on Earth want to make the Silver Surfer a god. So he acts horribly so they reject him. And then he's alone again in the universe. But he's acting horrible to be noble so that they don't worship him, basically. Transferring all the uh, um, dogma that Galactus built up onto him, essentially. Right. And making it so obnoxious that no one would be dumb enough to um, want to worship him. And sorry, maybe dogma is the wrong word there. I just couldn't find a better one. Yeah, so the odd thing about that is really the the surfer doesn't do a whole lot. Oh, he's barely in it. Galactus is undone by the fact that that he is involved in the death of the wrong person, I guess, at the wrong time, and then everyone turns against him. Well, this is a theme that happens because they kind of, there's it. It looks to me like uh, across. I read the first issue of um, the first five volumes of Surfer and a little bit more. And it feels to me like there's kind of like three modes of telling a Silver Surfer story. And this is the one where he sits back and he's more of a narrator or a... Um, Observer? El- yeah, almost like the Watcher. Almost, but he'll intervene. With that aspect of the, like the, the prophet that no one will listen to or something. Yeah, well... Yeah. I tell you to, be, to have love and you won't have love. The art is incredible by Mobius, and there actually is some good bits of dialogue and moments created by Stan Lee. I actually like the idea of this giant coming down from space and telling everyone, let's party, there's no morality. (laughs) That's kind of a wild notion that I thought was kind of cool. It's a fun idea. I have to admit, at first, uh, the way the people were drawn and everything, I thought it wasn't Earth. And they never really 
Demarkin till part till near the end of the first half. That's a good point. And, it could uh, have been interpreted as some other planet that Galactus is visiting. Yeah, people have these weird things on their head, and I don't. And the way that they denote Norman Rad as not being human per se, but a whatever you call the people of his planet before they all got eight. Well, I guess they didn't. They die later, though. Um, spoilers if you haven't read comics from the sixties. I just kind uh, of assumed it was Earth. So that didn't hit me. Yeah, I I didn't because it's a Silver Surfer story, and I didn't. Here's the thing: you know more of the lore, so you knew the fact that he was banished to Earth. I uh, I mean, I know that's mentioned the Fantastic Four, but I also know he's surfing around the universe later, so I didn't really know that that was yeah, such for, a, a thing. for the longest time. That uh, was his big issue. I'm trapped on Earth. I can't return to my paradise-like planet of Zenla and my true love Shalabal. And his obsession with Shalabal was kind of resembled a teenager who, you know, loves the girl he's never spoken to or something. Right. And this is resolved at the top of volume three, which is the longest surfer run at a hundred and forty six issues plus a little extra on there. Um, But the first issue is um, Galactus absolving him of his ban or. Um, But it actually directly comes out of that. Um, that John Byrne comic. Because I'm sorry, I, I didn't mention to you right, that right. I did read the first so, issue and a half of, of that beginning of that series written by, the beginning of it written by Steve Englehart. And Steve Englehart's a writer who loves right. continuity, so I wasn't surprised that he connected it directly to that other comic. Right. But this parable issue is interesting because there's a real tackle on no religion in particular but kind of the idea of religion and kind of the fervor and craziness it can cause in people when it's at these kind of gives you the impression that stan lee really hates the religious impulse and really um thinks humanity is very dark and very attracted to the darkness more than the light um which kind of surprised me Mm -hmm. from (laughs) You know, years of reading his Fantastic Four and things like that. Although some of the public will turn against the Fantastic Four very easily. Right. Well, and there's other stories that he's dealt with this in different ways. But this is definitely a story where he singles out this like particularly dark impulse and kind of the more. I, I say religion, but this is reads more cult-esque. But taken on a mass scale. I suppose scale. it's like the story of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah before they before they're destroyed. I forget uh, I forget the names of everyone, but was maybe it was Lot. Uh, God says, you know, find me one good person, and then I won't destroy this city. And they can't find one good person, and he destroys the city. Okay. <laughs> I think that's how it went. It's been a long time since I've I've heard these Bible stories, but and and. The Silver Surfer does find one good person who is the, happens to be the sister of the um, televangelist. Right. Well, and it's such an interesting play that like he's pushing this to get his own power and his own motives, of course. And they signpost right. that He's only heavily. following Galactus because he identified and, him as the root to power. Right. And then once his sister dies, he flips and he and it throws the whole thing off. But uh, it's interesting. Right, so I guess they were close. It's interesting because the story works, but there's some details that you kind of wonder about the character, but it doesn't really matter. 
But if this was written today, this would be a six issue arc and we'd have to get behind this family history a bit more. There'd probably be something with the parents and it'd be this whole thing. Whereas this is this is a lot rounder, a lot faster, and it's better for being punchy because diving into these depraved characters too much or the frankly kind of boring sister who's a good person like nothing's really gained there and how long we was get the whole thing just in enough. 60 pages and it felt like it could have they could have chopped 15 or 20 pages and still had a had the story working but yeah it, it, in a large part it was an excuse a way a story to drape the artwork of mobius onto and it was kind of a stunt you know the the most supposedly most famous American comic book person and the most famous European comic person teaming up. Right. To well, do. And there's an a lot of talk about Mobius. There, in, in my edition, I have this, which only Matt can see, this oversized, um, recently released album version of it. And in the back, there's long articles by Mobius on aspects of how weird it was to work with Stan Lee in the Marvel method, and although he liked it, and how, um, how he chose to use American comic book coloring, which at the time meant, you know, 64 colors or something total, and how difficult that was, but that right. he insisted on doing his own lettering because he feels that any artist who doesn't do their own lettering is incomplete, and all artists should do their own lettering or they are losers. <laughs> Because the lettering is as much a part of the art as everything else, which makes a lot of sense. But if I tried to, I could draw okay, but my handwriting is horrible, so I could see a lot of artists not wanting to go that way. Well, that's not <laughs> well, how you letter anymore. You might argue so. if he was alive that you should still letter that way because it's on the page with your art. So anyway, um, he was very aware. Mobius was of I'm doing this strange experiment with um with these strange americans and their strange way of doing comics so and then the other stan lee team up with john byrne a, a star artist i think still at the time he did it they did it together so also probably sort of a stunt thing where we bring back stan lee and have him team him up with one of the most popular artists of the day it was just called the silver surfer it's listed as silver surfer volume two in my uh a Marvel Unlimited app. Yeah, it's list, I understood it as a volume two, but it's a one shot. I mean, it's it's effectively mostly just a retelling, like you said, of the volume one stuff. Leaving There's a out lot of retelling, of and the then edges. the second half is kind of a story involving Mephisto, which who was one in the um, volume one sixties run was the Silver Surfer's main antagonist. We have this plot eventually where where the silver surfer is has a one-time ticket to leave earth uh, thanks to mr fantastic some invention of mr fantastic that will allow him to go through galactus's barrier one time and he goes back to zen law and discovers it's kind of a destroyed planet and what happened was galactus came back after silver surfer betrayed him and out of uh some sympathy for the Silver Surfer gave the people on the planet 24 hours to leave, and then he ate their planet. And then they moved back to this dead world um, and lived like refugees in tents. And they all hate the Silver Surfer and want to kill him. And uh, But he finds out that 
Mephisto has kidnapped Shalabal, and somehow that means they're both back on Earth. I don't know why Mephisto's connection to Earth is that important, because he's in a hell dimension. But so Silver Surfer has to go back to Earth. But he's Earth's hell dimension representative, basically, right? Isn't it that there's kind of a special oh, demon maybe. for maybe every he's planet? Earth's hell. But in the Marvel Universe, I recall there reading was, that somewhere. There was a hell with Satan. And then there was a hell with Mephisto, and there might have been mm-hmm. one or two other hells too. So that, right? Yeah, there's and the so Thor hell. The idea was there were multiple uh, hell um, dimensions that you could access, and one of them was ruled by Mephisto. So anyway, uh, Shalabal is with Mephisto, and Silver Surfer goes and fights Mephisto, and he's winning somehow. Not really explained how. It's just his willpower is greater than Mephisto's in the end. And so before Mephisto gets totally defeated, he zaps Shalabal and sends her back to Zenla. And so now the surfer is trapped on Earth and Mephisto wins because the surfer's unhappy again. And Mephisto just lives for the surfer to be unhappy. I think because the surfer is Christ <laughs> to Mephisto's devil. And so he wants to torment the good the right. one good person. Yeah, you've really keyed into this, and with the Mephisto connection, it's really pulled through. Between Parable and this, you know, he is the nobler-than-thou character. And so it's weird that there's this character that started in all this sci-fi craziness and got pulled to be kind of a religious character. It kind of made sense in the zeitgeist of the late 60s, where, you know, in the beginnings of the new age philosophy where you imagine science fiction was your answer to religion in a way. Um, there were a lot of novels like that at the time, but it, it didn't sell well to comic book readers. I think that was one of Stanley's big disappointments. Um, the silver surfer kind of bombed as a comic, I believe, relatively speaking. But, um, so then the final thing is the surfer with his science fiction, cosmic magic, with the power cosmic, which is unlimited in whatever, whatever writer wants it to be, shoots through the cosmos a beam that causes Shalabal to become a magical creature that wherever she walks, life will flourish. So as she's walking along around Zen Law, Zen Law comes back to life in the wake of her path. So she's got to zigzag the entire planet. <laughs> and so that's where Steve Englehart picks up on that. Later, when the surfer gets free, he goes back. And Shalabal has been made the empress of Zenla because she's the one who brought it back to life. Um, and she's still, in the Steve Englehart version, she still loves him. And I don't know what happens afterwards, but in the first few issues, he's going to be like her consort and help her rule Zenla and protect it against the Skrulls and the like. The so Englehart looks like Englehart was trying to get away from that Christ-like stuff while staying in continuity. Well, and Englehart had a weird job of pulling this character that really had been more of a uh, side character and then had this had his own little weird continuity and then uh, try to push it through. He did something right. right. Cause that but Englehart got in going. trouble with, I think after Jim Shooter left with whichever editorial team was in charge afterwards. And he left. He left our Marvel in a huff. Uh, and then I think if Jim Starlin might have taken it over. I'm not sure if Jim Starlin came in immediately or someone else. 
he definitely came in at some point. That's where you get a lot of the Thanos. Right. And then my impression um, from having read but, uh, issues in the '90s is Jim Starlin just turned it into a Jim Starlin book. But so, how did you? Did you enjoy? Sorry, well, we jumped ahead there, and now we're jumping back. Did you enjoy the John Byrne one more fine. or less, or around the same as the Mobius one? The John Byrne one felt more like reading a Wikipedia entry. You know, um, it's one of these artifacts of comics that you don't get anymore. And for my estimation, thank goodness. Um, And that's nothing against John Byrne here. Like this is this is just an artifact of the times where your access to reach back is not certainly what it is now or what it was when I was growing up. And so there were a lot of these archival kind of like play to continuity to bring people up to speed. But what I can't for the life of me understand is there's this book to get people back up to speed with the silver surfer in 1982 and there's not another solo i mean right. I, you know i think there's a one shot or somewhere in there but um the, he doesn't get the series push again until 1987 they must have been planning five years series, later and this was going to reintroduce him to the readers of the day who don't have access to the old comics and then they didn't do anything with it I, that'd be like them launching a series now that they were trying to recap in, gosh, five years ago, 2014. What was happening in comics in 2014, right? But like you like, say, they... That's crazy. Um, <laughs> back then, it was different. You you had to assume your audience didn't know very much about your characters unless, unless they'd been around this past year. They used to believe that the co- entire comic book audience recycled within a three or four year cycle. But they kept doing those editor's notes. Well, and obviously they were, by even by the 1982, they were realizing there were more people who were sticking with us longer. But still, there was no graphic novel to go back to. There was no digital copy. There was nothing at libraries or anything like that. So you had to assume a large part of your audience needed a recap. But it does seem like this was like a special or even if they had read it you know. for a continuing series. And so they were reestablishing the status quo by throwing in this thing where it seemed like Surfer was going to leave Earth and then he's trapped back on Earth and separated from Shalabal again. And but giving him this little bit of a happy ending with uh, Shalabal at least being able to bring life back to Zenla. It's crazy, though, because if you pull out this one shot, um, there wouldn't be a proper Silver Surfer series from 1970 until 1987. Like... The character is just around. I think he served yeah. best as a guest star, showing up here or there when you wanted some cosmic pizzazz for a little bit, but maybe not having a story that really could carry a whole series. But I, I think there was a call for him around the 90s, the early 2000s, where there was a lot of play with this kind of like boogeyman idea you you saw this with spawn or they're trying to do something different you saw this with um other characters and as they were trying to rotate through other major characters the idea of doing an old pull and kind of doing more of these human stories and trying to move like because only superhero stories were around then really trying to bring in more humanistic elements or stuff that you'd see more in indie comics that wouldn't need this excuse of a superhero framing and so like the volume four the first 
couple of issues at least are just around this Was autistic girl. the one girl you were telling me about that Greg Pak did? Something, it, it, What's this one? No. What is volume? No, this is the one before that. Um, it, it centers around this autistic girl. The Silver Surfer is just like... Yeah, and the Silver Surfer is just this character who like is like the good boogeyman who lives in her closet and there's a prophecy around and he's they have the sketch of like you know the standard like bug-eyed you know oval shaped head alien thing they play that up with the surfer and that's kind of what he looks like to them well so that makes a lot of sense so this is this is something written by dan charlton and stacy weiss i've never heard of these people i don't know who these people are yes well, it looks like very intense right. art. I'm looking on my iPad. Um, so that make that definitely seems like an approach to him as a force of he's almost like a force of nature rather than a character. Uh, and and that's why right when I was a little kid, this I thought I really wanted a story about this amazing force of nature, but I didn't realize forces of nature, ultimate cosmic beings, don't actually make for good stories. Well, and so playing with that idea, but playing around with the humanity of it, doing a uh, kind of, uh, how did Neil Gaiman put it, the feminine stories of the Sandman, if you will, because he tried to alternate between a masculine and feminine story, every other story arc in there. So, I don't know, it was a different take on the surfer, but the people come back to this character. Like I said, it's visually dynamic. You see the surfer once, and he's a character that stays in your head forever. He doesn't get lost. It really helps to have a, what a do you specific, do with distinct artist associated with him, I think. So Mobius or John Byrne at the height of his popularity, or John Buscema at the height of his powers, and Trad Moore right now in Silver Surfer Black is so visually overpowering and, and before that, we had the Michael Allred series, which actually also featured strong writing. But Michael Allred is also a very specific artist who did amazing stuff with the surfer himself. Writing and character-wise and story-wise, I loved this slot Allred one best. And he humanized the surfer, which I think was a very risky thing to do. But he used as a model Doctor Who and his relationship with his companions. And he gave the surfer a very human female companion who he does fall in love with. And it supersedes all the Shalabal stuff. And it feels like a real relationship with ups and downs. And it addresses head on the fact that the silver surfer is guilty of immense crimes. Perhaps he didn't entirely know what he was doing because he was under the sway of Galactus, but he is responsible. And so that plays into it. And at first, his companion doesn't know about his crimes. I, and when she finds out what it does to their relationship and stuff. I really want to read it because Dan Slott is an author who continues to impress me. And he's he's tackled all of my favorite characters and done something with them. And tackled characters that I don't necessarily care as much about. And when he does, um, finds an angle or something that pulls me in and makes me care about those characters more i think he's an immensely powerful character but i think the biggest critique of his career is that he's ultimately just kind of a friggin fanboy but and somehow in a good way my understanding is his surfer's run was much more generative much more did a lot more with the character though i yeah. think 
I could talk the Spider-Man side of it, and I think that he did a lot well, there. Well, there was a lot a more to be saved with the Silver Surfer than with Spider-Man, right? Spider-Man has a history of all kinds of good writing and good characterization, and plenty of bad, too. But um, right. Surfer mostly had a history of kind of not that well-defined. And, I, you know, I haven't read very much of that. 80s late 80s to ninth through the 90s surfer so i could be wrong about about that but it, i think that slot ignored most of that but other than that took the history of the surfer but then reimagined him as a as a human being but a very it was still a very comic book kind of comic not like when i just glanced at that one you talked about with the autistic girl it looked kind of like grim reality kind of stuff whereas because of the Michael Allred art, I think mm -hmm. Slot took this very comic book, cosmic, but isn't the cosmic kind of humorous and aliens are kind of funny looking and, you know, the, the weird twists and turns of the universe are like a little wonderland to explore as opposed to a grim thing and full of Christ-like tale, you know, tales of, of good and evil and such. So he really, he both humanized it and cartoonized it. And now Silver Surfer Black seems to take the cosmic part uh, and maybe a little bit of the need of redemption for the Silver Surfer and make the cosmicness even more cosmic than I think Jack Kirby or Stan Lee or the rest thought of back then because of twists of time travel and... Mm -hmm mythologies and just it's so big well and what's funny to me is we're talking about the silver surfer as a side character and despite this being a silver surfer story by all rights this is a tie-in this is a side book but with art that is so overwhelming you know that i'm just going to remember this for the art for decades to come i think well, and I'm going to remember the positioning of it, because what this ties into, if you're unfamiliar, is the author, Donny Cates, has been building up Venom and is currently in the middle of the biggest Marvel event ever. And frankly, it's only one true issue in, but I think is positioned to be the best Marvel event in years. Um, absolute carnage. And this is building up the ultimate true villain of it which is null which is the symbiote god -L. <laughs> kind of like the uh conan knockoff right call call null very similar but of course a null means nothing right it means zero less than zero right i find it interesting that the silver surfer is being used to build up this big cosmic villain because the Silver Surfer was used to build up Thanos and other big cosmic right. films before they became like the big Marvel bads. And so it's just kind of in a weird way, it's a return to form, but you need to know the history to know that there's nothing like textual about that. It's just, it's well, a so pull. I don't know what's going on with Null in the other books, the Donny Cates books, but, oh but my God, read it. you can tell me in a second, but it seems like, what Donny Cates is doing with Silver Surfer is weaving Null into the fabric of cosmic Marvel going back for billions of years. That So Null is not just someone appearing out of nowhere. In a sense, he's being retroactively woven into the very fabric of the entire universe of 
Marvel on the most cosmic level. Well, it's almost um, the high points of the Cthulhu idea, right? Some elder god uh, being brought to bear, but has always been kind of lurking in the history, right? In this case, Marvel history, though, so it's more fun. Right, he's kind of being positioned as something even bigger than Galactus, and even... Well, it's interesting that he's being paired with Carnage, because he just wants to kill and end. You know, he wants to destroy. He wants to, you know, watch it all burn. Um, and so he's just, he's just like an ultimate evil. He's a true villain on a level that you rarely go, even in comic books, because there's usually not that thing. In order to meet that kind of a idea it has to be brought to scale to be interesting and this is the biggest scale it's just this all-powerful being that just wants to kill and um it being part of the the what builds it up too is and i know you haven't damien so you can spoil things i mean i assume on this show we spoil things because yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm just trying to get my ducks in a row here because this is all Marvel lineage here. So in, if I have the number wrong, forgive me. In Amazing Spider-Man 375, I believe, it's a nice um, hollow cover thing. And it ends with Spider-Man and Venom on a handshake to not essentially fight each other anymore. They've had some scruffs since then, but more or less, this is actually held. It's actually kind of fascinating when you think that this char- those two characters shook hands and it's lasted for... That's crazy. Um, but after that, Venom was super popular, so they kept going with it. So there were... It's interesting because there's a, a number of Venom comics throughout the 90s, but they were always miniseries. So what should have been darn near a hundred issues of venom instead was broken into like five issues of lethal protector and six issues of separation anxiety and two issues of a wolverine team up and whatever and they are constantly spinning creators i assume they just thought that venom's popularity couldn't last very long so they just kept doing minis and then it kept being popular so they kept doing more well i wonder if part of it was that there was constantly a new number one and a kind of earned number new number one right like new creators new story um and so it was a number one and it was some new subheader so there's always kind of a reason and if some creator you liked was on venom that month you'd pick it up it's kind of an interesting different formula from a marketing perspective but ultimately who cares but through this you have a bunch of different creators and artists spinning off the symbiote and which would mean in some ways the artist would kind of accidentally be defining new powers or attributes of the symbiote as they went along which is interesting because like you know how venom looks with the giant mouth and all that right when Venom was first introduced, they originally thought it was going to be a female, which is why the hand-pushing Spider-Man is a uh, female um, in whatever issue that is before 300. And then they landed on Eddie Brock. And then, um, But originally, if you look at the first appearance of the Eddie Brock symbiote, he looks just kind of like black suit Spider-Man, but with a mouth. But Eric Larson remembered this being... Um, 
like a played up mouth. He remembered it being so much bigger. So he drew this gnarly jaw and whatever. And so that was the evolution of that. And so like, this is a character that just kind of got evolutionized. And so like, I think eventually someone just drew the symbiote, like punching out the back, like <laughs> off. And so suddenly he had a new power and like, it just kept going like this. The writers would play with how the symbiote bonded, the relative weaknesses, writing and new superpowers for it. It just kept going and going. I have to say your face has really lit up while talking about all this. So are we, were you thinking of talking about the Silver Surfer because he's become connected to all of this? Was this what brought him to the fore? No, I don't know. It just, the idea of this is fascinating to me because Venom is such a stupid character. But when you pull out and realize like what they did with it, it's just I always think of him as the ultimate in Marvel 90s where they just kept getting more and more ridiculous and no one thought it would keep going very long. Somehow this character has stayed a popular part of the the fringes of the spider mythos. Now, right. bringing, does it make you uncomfortable bringing such, you know, deep time cosmicness all connected into this thing that it has its roots as a Spider-Man character? I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? So what they've been trying to do since 375 is separate Venom from Spider-Man. Right. That's true. The, and I mean, to get into the the other end of it like they have a separate movie now right they want venom to be his own character his own franchise for legal reasons atop creative reasons and so through this there is some weird spider-man specials where they introduce the planet of the symbiotes how long ago this idea of the planet of the symbiotes 95 96 somewhere in there yeah um but they kind of leave it and abandon it and bendis did uh, an avengers story circling around it but i i believe the race is the sen it's something with a c i can't pull it right now but ultimately what's happening here is donny cates is pulling what jeff johns pulled with green lantern back in the day taking all this bullshit and wrapping it around in some in a little bit of mythos that encompasses the entire thing, sands off the edges, ignores a little bit, and redelivers it in a way that's like, here's a concept you can get without reading Wikipedia for an hour. <laughs> like, here you go. And it's it's so brilliant. And the fact that he's using the Silver Surfer to do this is so great because you have this heightened villain with all this craziness and all the weirdness of the symbiotes and you put the silver surfer against that it builds it it makes it more mythic it makes it more crazy and it fits and also as a spider-man fan i feel like it kind of absolves peter of the responsibility of it because there's been kind of a metatextual play of like is Peter to blame for the symbiotes murders keeping in mind that he brought venom, but then it's carnage and toxin and like eight other symbiotes that but were colored. Did he open the door to symbiotes finding earth in a sense. 
Right, but he didn't know, and he actively tried to stop it as soon as he could, and yada, and it's one of the few things he'll actively kill. And at this uh, point, if they've been this sort of evil thing for billions of years around the cosmos, then clearly he's not responsible for them. But they're evil. But they're tr- the planet of the symbiotes is now a cage for Null. Oh, I didn't that is that. such a crazy concept. Well, that's what uh, we get to in issue three of Silver Surfer Black is like. This was already established in Venom, but Silver Surfer gets to the core of the planet, and in it is Null, and he has this dread. No, no, He's no, face- in it is... Galactus. Or is it two? Issue two, sorry. I need issue two in front of me. Issue three involves Ego, the living planet, and the birth cradle yeah. of Galactus. So is issue two, because in issue three, because at the end of issue two, Ego says, like you know you've had all this redemption problems with planets you know here's a planet going to give you redemption which is fun also kind of a green lantern pull because that feels a little mogo i need to go back to issue two but i thought issue two basically we discover that silver surfer realizes he encountered the planet of the symbiotes which hated him but he didn't know Mm -hmm. why and now he's back millions of years in time and he's going to do whatever it was that will make them consider him their greatest enemy in the future. Oh, that that's there. Yes, that's so that's I part of the flashback part. That Null is trapped. It's it's like covered in a couple pages, and maybe it's only because I knew it prior. Maybe that if I was you able have to prior knowledge it. about it from the other things you've read, it, it's more clear. Um. The, but, in fact, uh, the biggest flaw to Silver Surfer Black was in issue one, I missed the fact that he had gone billions of years into the past. Maybe Donny Cates mentioned it, but I think maybe he also kind of took for granted that that's what happens when you go through a black hole or something. But Well, obviously. You know, that's not what happened last time you went through a black hole. hole. Come I on. Think of all the zits I'm going to get. But no. <laughs> <laughs> Not a black head, a black hole. <laughs> No, but anyway, um, I need to reread it because there's obviously stuff I'm missing and I'm going to read the Venom. I'd been planning all along to read Venom on Marvel Unlimited, but maybe I need to try and read it before it all comes out on Marvel Unlimited. But I mean, I need to read the Dan Slot Surfer stuff. Um, but... but in terms of understanding this story, you don't need to read the, the, the Dan Slot Surfer stuff exists. Well, apparently you do. No, you don't. It exists on its own. <laughs> you can enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. Or, or I enjoyed it a lot. But it exists in its own little world and is not connected to this particularly. Hmm. In fact, this surfer feels more akin to the old surfer who is this cosmic, almost demi-religious, angelic figure. Um, Super dead. And here he's having to make sacrifices you know, of his hand and then his arm to, uh, to do what he thinks is the right thing. You know, it just hit me. You know how Marvel does all their merchandising? Yes. Was there ever a Silver Surfer Popsicle? Because I feel like that's a good fit. <laughs> I guess he does look like a Popsicle, but what flavor would it be? <laughs> what would silver be? Silverberry? Uh, <laughs> Some kind of metallic tasting vanilla? I don't know. It sounds like the most exciting thing about Silver Surfer is when he's used... <laughs> except in the dance in my opinion in the dance lot thing when he's used as a tool in another interesting story well so that brings me reaching back a bit to the silver candy coating of uh, volume five 
where Greg Pak uh, does a little tryst. I haven't the read Sinister. anything of Volume Five. It's yeah, just, don't. It's just. Is it just five issues? Yeah, that's all they have on. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's like a weird arc that they threw in. I don't know something that maybe it was around. When was that movie released? The second. It says it was 2011 movie. on the Marvel Unlimited. Is that when that movie came out? Because it might be why. Which movie? Um, the, oh, the Rise of the Surfer or whatever. Yeah. In the the second Fantastic Four comic. Now there, they played the Silver Surfer as an alien, unknowable. He was. They actually returned him to the Jack Kirby concept. Yeah, and they made Galactus pretty... a giant cloud. Well, that was the ultimate version because I think. I remember and there's an idea article. out there that Galactus is like a giant cloud that everyone just sees him in their own context. Yeah, which, what a bummer, man. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because for all the realism that they're trying to push to make comic books more applicable to the audience, literally every comic book fan is like, no, I wanted Galactus. Right. You know, um, <laughs> a giant man with a crazy helmet and a loincloth. And possibly pants, but maybe not. But um, the, the conceit of Volume 5 is, what if you put the Silver Surfer in a position where he was just a man again? Which I took issue with, because he was never a human, which is the words they use, ever. Um, but they go to that, and so like he can get shot, and they do this whole thing, and then... Um, this other character that's a female becomes a herald of the high evolutionary the future foundation get involved this is when johnny storm was kia um for however long that lasted (laughs) a year i think yeah like not long enough um which you know he can never stay dead but if you get to the final issue um the surfer and the herald of the high evolutionary get uh, feisty in space to which has Mr. Fantastic cover his kid's eyes. The invisible woman just turns to him and says, I love you. Spider-Man says something like wowza, which <laughs> is a little weird for one of the playboys of the Marvel universe. And uh, the thing says, you get him, boy, or something <laughs> kind of weird. And it's just a weird moment. Like, I feel like there's something about the surfer where he's noble and all this, but they keep wanting to give him, like, a true love or, like, this, like, this idea that, like, love conquers all and is willing to get a little sexy because there's something about a super svelte mm-hmm. silver man that says sexy in Marvel. Well, he's basically naked all the time. Sans the uh, Dr. Manhattan uh, hostess fruit pie cake He's hanging. Missing, right. Ah, <laughs> uh, where's the cream? But filling? in the original Jack Kirby, he had little lines that indicated he was wearing underwear or a bathing suit or something. Right, a little bit of modesty. They took those away. I'm not sure why. But it was an interesting tryst that I was able to skim through while we were pre- prepping for this, and I wanted to get a little more grounding in the character. But I'm curious, since we're here, if you could reach back, can you tell me about how we worked on the Defenders? Because how do you have someone with nearly godlike powers playing uh, playing on a team like that? Basically, the Defenders made no sense. I mean, they okay. had Hulk. <laughs> they had Hulk, 
Doctor Strange and the Silver Surfer. Do they have anyone else? Almost got it. Uh, infinite amounts of power kind of characters was there anyone else or is it those three and then submar- submariner and then they shit then they started rotating in and out other characters and so silver surfer kind of came and went hulk came and went and so then they eventually added more sort of grounded slightly grounded characters like valkyrie and night hawk i think his name was how is valkyrie more grounded uh nighthawk well his valkyrie's powers don't seem as unlimited as silver surfer or the hulks she's basically she thor um yeah i guess they didn't treat her that now literally being that powerful (laughs) back then um not nearly the equivalent of thor but (sighs) the friggin' patriarchy man um indeed so it's funny you mention all those characters because all those characters are kind of the fringes of Marvel that I never got. Silver Surfer seemed boring. Doctor Strange seemed boring. Um, the Hulk to me always felt like the way we've been talking about Silver Surfer most of the time, where a character who could have stories of his own periodically, but was served better by being an element in the Marvel universe that would kind of crash in a force of nature. I felt I've always felt like that's more of how the Hulk should be, but he's one of their biggest characters. And how do you tell a story with the Hulk consistently all the time? Having tried to read some, I think I'm right. <laughs> well, in the Immortal Hulk, they take that to heart and they make him a often off the page character. I've heard good things about the Immortal Hulk. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Wade's Hulk. Um, I've heard good things about Peter David's Hulk. You were a and, fan of Wade's Hulk? No, I was not. Oh, I, I was thought I. that was a great proof of... Uh, that Wade could not figure out what to do with the Hulk. And neither could Jason Aaron. Neither well, could and, a bunch of other people. Let me say this. If Mark Wade can't figure out what to do with a comic book character... You know, I, I don't know. I, I think Mark Wade is one of the most talented writers. He has his misses. Don't he has your... plenty of misses, I would say. He's he, I agree he's extremely talented, but I don't think he can he I don't think he can break every character, so to speak, break it down and figure out what to do with it. And he, he really Is there any writer you think can? Well, Al Ewing is doing it right now. Who, well, what else has and Al Ewing done? I have not read his other comics. I know that he's done like the Ultimates and Boo. I think he might have done a Loki thing, but it doesn't matter. Just read The Immortal Hulk and you'll see what Al Ewing can do now. Well, and I feel like there's certain people that can write certain characters when they do. It's like next level, but then they get to other stuff and eh, not so much. And Bruce Jones, no one seems to remember anymore, but he, in the early 2000s, Bruce Jones did a really good Hulk. Okay. And um, I feel like there was another Hulk run that I wanted to mention. Well, Greg Pak for a while did an interesting take on the Hulk. Which mostly ignored the Hulk and substituted him for, uh, <laughs> well, for Hercules and for um, ah, the Asian kid that like oh, no, had no, no. I'm super talking about, smart you know, powers. Planet Hulk and that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, but all that led into this other stuff that Greg Pak well, yeah. did. Greg Pak kept him. And then the up. Red Hulk. For the most part, Greg Pak avoided the Hulk. <laughs> the Red Hulk was Jeff Loeb, I think. Oh, you're right. Oh, yeah. yeah you're right. And Parker. But uh, and in my opinion, Roy Thomas did some interesting things with with the Hulk back in the late '60s. But um, Roy, Roy, he's our boy. 
<laughs> Did Len Wein ever touch the Hulk? Who? Len Wein. I think so, yeah. In fact, I think he was riding the Hulk when uh, Wolverine came along in the Hulk. Oh, that sounds right. But I don't think Len Wein's Hulk was very memorable, other than the fact that he invented Wolverine. Wait, did he? I mean, that's one of those moments where I'm like, I know it introduced the character, but it didn't really like, you know, invent and introduce the character. We have some of those moments. Like, well, I feel the like truth Wolverine... is, a lot of these characters are invented by groups of people and evolved over time. So yeah, Wolverine was not that notable of a character at the time he showed up in the Hulk. Well, until you get the Wolverine mini with Claremont and uh, Frank Miller, he's not really, you know, Wolverine yet. Deadpool isn't really Deadpool till you get freaking Joe Kelly on it, or at least Nikesa doing the minis, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, it's an odd creative world where, you know, one person who started the character will get forever get the credit of being their creator, when really they're maybe created by 15 or 20 different writers over time. Was Silver Surfer really Silver Silver Surfer before uh, Dan Slott got to him? Well, it sounds like you like you liked the Greg Pak one. I it was an interesting tryst, but I wouldn't recommend it to a soul. <laughs> <laughs> Your use of the word tryst has me a little confused, but but I guess I won't delve into that too much. So, have you read any other good comics? The Silver Surfer is a difficult character. For some reason, some people like me want to love him. I want really cool cosmic stories, but really cool cosmic stories are really hard or next to impossible to do. And these moments, like this Silver Surfer Black, that achieve some sort of cosmic orgasm, so to speak, <laughs> at least in the art and partially in the story, are as far as I'm going to get, probably. And then there were some cool, very cool moments in that dance lot comic. Well, and to tie, but the, Surfer it's almost Black. like I, I get the feeling from Silver Surfer Black that what Dan Slott did with Silver Surfer is now gone. It was just it was those twenty five issues, and now and that's it. Well, we'll see. So, a, I want to say I think Surfer Black kind of ties back to the Mobius thing, where that comic has a bit of heavy metal, a bit of like Europeans. Yes flavor to it silver surfer um, black has even more heavy metal to it than mobius does <laughs> I mean, um trad Moore is like saying okay i'm gonna show you how cosmic i can get and you know i i think this is a moment where they needed the surfer to be this realm but yeah. having read the first issue of every volume like the surfer goes through modes and i'm willing to bet you because that's that dan slot surfer run it's about the only time i've heard the silver surfer talked about in a way as like a character is part of the greater right. mythos and where's our adaptation and yada yada because people can't just enjoy comics anymore but, but dan slot gave him a whole supporting cast that's now gone and he gave him a whole different personality that's gone well and it was a whole run of surfer under creative vision and i think it's definitely going to be the fan favorite of the surfer moving forward as we were moving past. But the surfer is being used as a tool for Kate's here in a way that's very effective. Right. But I'm willing to bet you that we're going to get some return to some of those slots. And I'm saying this not having read it, but just having a general flavor of it, a general feel of the ebb and flow of comics. I'm willing to bet you after Black's done, we get the next surfer burst in 
15 years or whatever it is um i'm willing to bet some of those dan slot elements are going to bounce back i would i just occurred to me that with most of these iterations of the surfer what he is is he's a a blank character and he literally looks blank for the audience to project themselves onto so if i were going to go tripping along the universe I can do that via the Silver Surfer. I can imagine myself experiencing what the Surfer's experiencing in Silver Surfer Black or in his battles with Mephisto or what have you. And um, did you ever see the animated show? That was really effective in all the cosmic end of... It took all the the Kree-Skrull War and um, Thanos and all these other cosmic characters and threw them in the mix without any of the rest of Marvel existing. And uh, and it was really fun, but the surfer didn't really have a personality. He was just kind of a woe is me. I guess I have to move on to the next planet and have the next adventure kind of guy. And wow. there's something about characters like that that maybe particularly when one is young, you can sort of project yourself onto the character. There's my pitch, Damien. So we have the surfer going along and due to some cosmic accident, he becomes at least temporarily mute. He teams up with Black Bolt and takes on some of the greater problems of the universe. But both of them as silent protagonists are characters we project our own values and feelings into against greater evils. Right. And through that, the reader almost writes their own dialogue. Yes. That's well, my pitch. And the surf, maybe the surfer's real place, just like the Inhumans and Black Bolt, the real effective place for them is as supporting characters in the tapestry of the Fantastic Four's adventures. Whew. All right. I, we think we're going to come back and discuss a few issues of Jack Kirby's New Gods. Uh, hopefully, it's specifically issues six and seven of Jack Kirby's original run of the New Gods. Which, right. um which have been favorites of mine since I was 10. So I'll probably cry when uh, Matt finds all the flaws with them. <laughs> I know they're very flawed comics. <laughs> Speaking of which, boop-boop-boop-boop, I have an update. You found I... life number two. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wife number one would kill me. Um, no, I am one, two, three. I am five issues away from owning every pop, every proper volume issue in one form or another of the Ninja Turtles comics through all time. Wow. In counting those Archie ones that you said you might not get all of them? I current... Oh, this is fascinating. So currently I, I made a couple in stock trades orders. Technically one, but I split it because you get an extra 3% of you. Right whatever you spend fifty dollars uh, and then you save three percent on your next fifty dollars yeah i think i spent 80 and then i spent another something also i filled out some at fraction stuff um matt thanks you i'm sure he cares uh so i i got all the archie trades up to this point so i'll have all the tmt adventures stuff and then i'm going to have all of the tales of the ninja turtles volume two in color volumes as well though the, that doesn't affect this count because i already have that entire run um as it was originally printed actually on most ninja turtle comics at least twice um but through 
back channels, I found the Russian distributor and publisher of Ninja Turtles, who apparently has certain comics that were never published in America that are like these secret additions to Ninja Turtles Adventures Volume 4 and Volume 3 with these never printed comics. And with Volume 3, even more interesting, not even never printed, but never digitally released as well. So they're like you mean never printed super, in English or never printed even never in Russia? printed before until this guy put it out. There's like all these secret like tail ending turtle comics that I'm looking at trying to acquire. I'm I'm fascinated because I don't think of you as a completist, and I, and not, not as a, normally like a, you're a fan of trades and. Well, so like the Ninja Turtle Adventures, I'm getting in trade. That, there's that real comic book collector in you when it comes to the Ninja Turtles. Well, it's because I, I you know, I, I don't consider myself a collector, but when I want to read something, you got to collect it to read it. Yes. Um, And so with the Turtles, I came so close. And so like the only thing is like some of the early volume one stuff I don't have in issues, but I have them twice over in reprints and other stuff. All the current run I obviously have, and I have so much of the other stuff. It's just a matter of like finding the holes at this point. And it's funny because, you know, the digitals have been going, but comparatively to most bigger Marvel or DC things, it's not as much of a uh, issue to collect. So if you could get the first prints of those early issues, would it? Would you care, or are you happy with other printings? That gets to, like, that dollar-to-caring ratio, because, like, the early prints of Volume 1 that I don't have are issues, like, 1 through 4. And so, like, obviously, if I and if I'm going to get any of these, the, all of them have multiple printings. Uh-huh. If I'm going to get any of them at this point, I'm getting a first printing, because otherwise, what's the point, right? But if you got a first printing, would it... Would you feel some deeper satisfaction than if you got a second printing? It gets that dollar value where I got a question. Uh-huh. Like to get a to get a turtle's number one first print is money in a way that things aren't normally in common. You know, that's one of those definitive collector's items. Like that's a comic I might buy slabbed because honestly. I'd never open it. It would be right. about owning it. You'd feel it. like you have to do it as an investment, which I don't know. To me, getting comics as an investment then ruins the fun of it. For some people, it increases the fun of it. But and That's not normally my thing, but this is one of the few that I, I uh, would potentially buckle for. Um, right. Let's say you weren't as worried about the money as you probably should be, given that you have a young baby <laughs> to take care of. But anyway, so this is fascinating to me. Um, and if you complete, you get everything you want, will you? Will there be something else you'll start collecting on this level? Or will that kind of satiate you and you'll just return to happily reading trades and not, not worrying about whether you have something as a permanent collection and all that? Well, so I've had moments of collecting in the past, right? Like, um, I really wanted to collect all the Deadpool comics of the time. And so for up till a point of time, I own every Deadpool comic and then I dropped off. And so now that cart has sailed. I don't care. But I own 
a lot of weird Deadpool stuff. And some of the weirder stuff's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. But um, the only other character I'd probably get this weird about is Spider-Man. And that's a that's a different mountain to climb. <laughs> But I mean, like, I could see wanting to collect maybe some of the B-books of completion. Like, getting all of Sensational wouldn't be a far cry. That wouldn't be a big deal. Getting all of Spectacular could be kind of fun. If I, But that's something that I would only do, like, finding comics in the wild or something, right? Like, I wouldn't go online to complete that. Yeah. So, I mean, this reminds me of myself in a certain way and what my limits are, because... I'm trying to figure that out right now because I got excited. I was buying a lot of cheap 60s and 70s Submariner, and I just really huh. like the covers. And I kind of like Submariner might be another one of these characters like Silver Surfer that is better in abstract than in reality. But anyway, I was collecting lots of them, and I'm getting close to having a full run of something like 70 issues. But the very first issue is the one of the expensive ones. And, you know, everything else I've been getting for, you know, three or four dollars. Sure. Or sometimes even less. And um, I can't remember what I think number one is over a hundred dollars. But I read it digitally and it it was a pointless comic. It was a, just a rehash of the entire history of Silver Surfer. I mean, Submar Submariner up to the point of that number one issue. And it uh, was not artfully done or well done. There was nothing about it that I liked. But. Now I'm asking myself, well, will I be happy if I have Submariner 2 through 70? <laughs> or do I have to have number one? Yeah, at that point, it's about the collection, right? It's not about the comic itself. Yeah. It's about and the that, collection. And, and part of my pleasure for the rest of the Submariner was, hey, I can get this thing that I find kind of cool in this nostalgic way for very little money. Um, but right. suddenly I do have to let go of some money for an issue I know I don't even like, but it completes the set. It's the tyranny of collecting. But to compare it, um, volume four of the Turtles, which is Peter Laird's more solo thrust. Uh -huh. um, so I got issue 31, which was published after issue 32, which is the last supposedly published issue. Um, uh -huh. But 31 and 32 were limited to a thousand copies printed. Wow, that's small. And so 32 in order for, like, I could buy it right now, like $120. I've read it online. It's a bad comic. I don't like it. <laughs> right. So it's the same dilemma. But God damn, I want to own it. <laughs> but I mean, at this point, it's, it's more heightened than your Submariner thing, I feel, because it's not just that run of the Submariner, right? It's every you turtle issue you've kind of uh, in in your the comic book side of your life your identity is partially wrapped up in the turtles it's kind of wrapped up in the turtles and in spider-man oh yeah the turtles is more special because there's not as many turtle fanatics as there are spider-man fanatics like you're just one of many fish in the spider-man podcast pool for right so do you feel more close like more wrapped up in wanting to get all the turtles and be sort of the master of the turtle domain in a way you wouldn't be with spider-man well so part of it is 
I genuinely love most Turtles comics. Like most of volume one are some of my favorite comics of all time. Some of volume one are some of my most talked about comics of all time. And then volume two, I've just had, that's been, that was the first run of comics I ever completed because it was 12 or 13 issues that at the time were just around. Now they're collector's items and they're not worth the price. Um, and then uh, volume three was something I pushed to collect and is this crazy thing I get to tell people about that's a fun side story of Turtles. And then, you know, volume four is probably the one I actually just, it has some interesting sci-fi concepts that I think you'd like if you could read a summary. They're fun concepts, but they take too long to play out. Um, it's it's pretty clear that uh, Eastman was more the uh, Frank Miller fan and Laird was more the Kirby fan as you play through. Um, but then this current run has just consistently been my favorite comic. And now we're, we're entering issue 100, but it's like almost 200 issues of comics when you count everything along with it. And I'm actually kind of worried because the main focus and blood behind it I mean, kevin eastman's there but you can tell tom waltz has been the driving force behind this run he's leaving so that's well is this um what's her name taking over the right sophie the, campbell the very good artist is taking over the writing and that always makes me pause sophie campbell's done a lot of good stuff I here's the thing. Sophie Campbell's been my favorite artist on the book whenever she's on. A lot of great artists, a lot of great stuff, a few freaking clunkers, which actually kills me. I wish they'd get a new artist to redo a few issues. Uh, but um Sophie Campbell taking over the book worries me not because of the reason you mentioned, but because right before it was announced that she was going to be taking over the book she was talking about how she was taking on this big project and she's happy to do and it should be good but there's she was putting on hold a pet project that she really wanted to get to that was a personal thing and it's a contract so it's going to happen but it's on hold because she has to do this you know bigger paying gig and i'm like this is my friggin book and i don't want someone at the helm who's like it's a job for that you know what i mean you want the person who's doing it because this is their dream job. Right. And like, and after a friggin' legacy, like, th- this is the longest running Turtles book. This is the biggest the Turtles has ever been as far as comics goes, if you exclude the initial explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's an amalgamation of all the turtles lore like there's been references to all the movies all the cartoons some other stuff the old comics Uh, it's pulled through in so many ways and taken the whole tapestry of everything and pulled it together and to just hand it off to someone who's doing it cuz like don't get me wrong i know selfie campbell will play above and she's put some stuff into the turtles that has improved it immensely and so like There'll be good stuff in it, I know, but that worries me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, time will tell. We'll have to do a Turtles update after Sophie Campbell's been working on it for a year or so. 
Yeah, you're just going to have to catch up. Right. <laughs> I'm going to read them all. Very quickly. Yeah. Um, they should get Dan Slott to write the Turtles. That's what they need. Dan Slott has written the Ninja Turtles oh, before. Really? It was a three-issue run called You're the Turtle. And as a kid, um, it was one of my favorite runs before I cared about authors or artists or any of that. Peter David also seems like someone who would be a good Peter David has written the Ninja Turtles as well. <laughs> so good eye. <laughs> well, I, I pick out people who I think take their jobs very seriously, uh, but also have a sense of humor when they do so. Well, anyway, this is fascinating and far off from our original topic. But Sorry, I just had to get no, it no, out there because it was just... You know, in another side of collecting... So one of my obsessions, which we've been having trouble because of me doing podcasts about, is the spirit. And I have found myself collecting the spirit in more and more different ways. I don't expect to ever be a completist. But I used to just collect the, um, the black and white spirit magazines that I thought were the best presentation of them. Mm-hmm. And then I started discovering that on eBay I could get some of these original newspaper sections so I bought a bunch of newspaper sections of the spirit and then I've been buying color reprints and then I um, realized, Hey, I never owned the 1960s underground comics that had the spirit in it. So I recently bought those, Oh wow! which were not that expensive. I had assumed they were going to be terribly expensive. Maybe they were when I was first, first discovered the spirit, at least relative to the amount of money I had then. Yeah. And then I have bought uh, one piece of original art by Will Eisner, uh, a, a spirit page without the spirit on it. So I Ow. haven't got to the point where I can afford to buy artwork with the spirit on it. But still, I have all kinds of different aspects of the spirit, and I enjoy um, collecting those, even though they're kind of just redundant and symbolic of loving the spirit, right? I, could, I already have the best reprints of all the best stories but did you ever read some of the modern spirit stuff where like darwin cook did it or anything like that yes and i i read the one that so i read the darwin cook and i thought it was pretty good but i need to reread it i kind of read it with half an eye on i wasn't paying close attention fair enough um but i have the issues and i'm gonna try and reread it sometime i recently read the francisco francovilla version oh I tried to read the Matt Wagner version, but Hmm. the art in it really didn't work for me, and I didn't get all the way through it. Who did the art, or was it Matt Wagner? No, Matt Wagner did not do the art. Some guy named, like, Dan Skade or something like that. Okay. That was, I don't know. There was an introduction with Matt Wagner talking about what a great artist he was, so then I had high hopes when I started reading the trade, but no, Matt Wagner was just blowing smoke. (laughs) But um, Francisco Francovia did a great job but it was a francovia comic and that's the real thing uh the spirit that i love is will eisner's spirit you can't you can't extract the character out of it but i just enjoy kind of collecting all this different stuff of the spirit so i even enjoy collecting things like darwin cook and other spirit spin-offs but also yeah like there's no real point in reading the spirit in the original newspaper sections which are all so yellowed and crumbly and the reproduction of the art looks horrible now it's uh but i have fun doing it anyway so i think i'm 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 slowly becoming the kind of collector i didn't think i was which is 
collecting things beyond the point of reading them, if you see what I'm saying. I always thought all my collecting was centered around reading. I'm a little I'm... scared about it going beyond that. <laughs> well, and I know you've been buying some original art, like you said, yes. and some of that, which is a very different... Right. Yeah, I the... certainly never have. There's the original a art pages. feels like a... Um, it feels symbolic in a sense. Like it's something the artist physically held in his hand, you know, physically worked on. Um, and so there, it's a different kind of collecting. Any original art I'd be tempted to buy would be at a price point that would immediately make me not care. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm kind of hoping the things I bought will at least maintain their value so that, you know, 15 years from now I can release them back into the world and not have lost money. But we'll see. And I think there's a reality to that with some of those things, especially like a Will Eisner page. Right. Come on. In a way, it seems smarter to buy the Will Eisner and the Jack Kirby than, than the... Um... Well, and if you're going to pretend comic books are an investment, buying original art of something with any historical je ne sais quoi to it would right. have more, more I guess the question is, that. in 20 years, will people still have hold it in as high regard as they do now? Well, presumably Eisner? with Eisner and Kirby, they will. So like, I actually looked to see if there, if I could buy any of this Tradmore art because it seems so cool. But it had all sold out. I don't even know what it sold for. His pages from other comics that no one cares about sell for two hundred fifty dollars. But since all of it sold out, I'm sure they they realized to raise the prices. Huh. But I don't know if you know if I bought Tradmore at a at a higher price. You know, would I be able to sell it for that higher price twenty years from now? I don't know. I don't. I don't know enough about how the art market works. But clearly, if you had a Ditko or a or a Kirby or whatever, then you would. Well, knowing a little something about the fine art market now, um, only because of my dad trying to enter it, um, I actually think comic book original art actually is m more fair from an economical standpoint than fine art is. Because there's a certain relative amount to the amount the artist put in and certain values you can actually understand. Like if it's supposed to be from Spider-Man, a page with Spider-Man on it's worth more because you care more because that's kind of why you sh showed up. Um, details like, you know, splash pages are worth more and whatnot versus talking head pages are worth less. Yeah. You know, it, it makes a sense. There's a mathematics to it that makes a certain kind of sense. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's still, there's a hierarchy putting value on art. So there's a little, yeah. Unfortunately, when I'm going for these top people like Eisner or Kirby, I'm getting the pages that are the equivalent of the talking heads. Because that's all I want to... That's still a lot of money. <laughs> but maybe the smarter investment would be the much more expensive action scenes or something. Even though you are laying out more money, maybe you will you will uh, incur more money in the end. I've been going a different way with my collecting. Uh -huh. I started collecting all the Spider-Man novels. <laughs> now, I love that kind of collecting too. The stuff that no one else wants but that you love. That's a great stuff to collect. I have a historical one for you that might shoot up in uh, value soon. Oh, okay. The first novel of Spider-Man, uh, Stanley presented. Uh, <laughs> Len Wein and Marf Wolfman wrote it. It's called Marvel. Mayhem in Manhattan. It's the first Marvel novel, and they did a whole series of Marvel novels, cool. and only a few were Spider-Man, but the first one was Spider-Man. And so it's kind of a... It's a... 
it's already worth a little bit. Like, I had to pay, like, $12 to get a decent copy, uh-huh. whereas most of the other Spider-Man novels were the shipping matched the price. So there's a few of them that are worth worth a little bit. Cool. And who knows, maybe that'll be worth $24 by the time they're ready to sell. Right, like, woo. But it's for me, it's more like I am owning a little piece of Spider-Man history. Exactly. To you, it's special whether or not it is. Okay, well, we're not dead yet, uh, or we may be dead from exhaustion, but we'll be back to life by the next episode. Was there a tryst in the thrust? Sorry. Yes. I'm sometimes yes. distracted by your choice of vocabulary. Fair enough. It's, um, it's stintillating.